Oh, the humanity. Today we are going to biology class together to talk about animals, humans, hunger, and vampires. I've been brushing up on all things vampire lore and gender theory to help decipher what makes Edward Cullen animalistic and cold. Is it the vampire thing? Is it a toxic masculinity thing? Is he just hangry? Perhaps it's all of the above. Edward is set up for failure by Stephanie Meyer once again as she twists existing vampire lore to make him impossibly fast and strong with skin that's pale white and ice cold. Edward Cullen acts like an animal often between his interpersonal skills and his menacing bloodlust. My question today is, did Stephanie Meyer write him like that because he's a vampire or because he's a man? A quick warning for those who felt like prey to their romantic partners or, or who have survived attacks by human lions, this episode contains pertinent context about rape culture and may not be for everybody. As you already know, I'm going through the four main books of the Twilight Saga, plus the book Life and Death, the gender-swapped version of Twilight and Midnight Sun, which is the book told from Edward's perspective. Though no book by Stephanie Meyer would explicitly state that something was rape or assault or even rape culture, a big part of my goal here is to strip away that nuance so we can see the Twilight Saga for what it really is. One of the most classic lines from Twilight goes like this. And so the lion fell in love with the lamb, he murmured. I looked away, hiding my eyes as I thrilled to the word. What a stupid lamb, I sighed. What a sick, masochistic lion. Stephanie Meyer's pulling out her Bible to borrow and rework a metaphor that, that's been written a hundred thousand times. Clearly, she's worked it out so Edward is a lion and Bella is a lamb. The Bible has a couple meanings for the lion and the lamb, one where the lion is Jesus Christ's resurrection and the lamb is his sacrifice. Another version was coined by the main Mormon himself, Joseph Smith Jr., someone Stephanie is certainly familiar with as a follower of Mormon faith. He borrows from the biblical book of Isaiah to say, The lion and the lamb can dwell together, and the sucking child can play with the serpent in safety. The power of this metaphor lies in the fact that a lion is a natural predator of a lamb, and their peaceful coexistence would require an act of God to work. The way Stephanie Meyer has written it, the masochistic lion is in love with the stupid lamb. Every problem I have with this story as a whole is summed up in those lines. For starters, a lion refers to an adult creature and a lamb refers to a baby creature. Even though I can safely assume that in the Twilight universe, Bella knows this is a biblical reference, the age difference is one part of the reason the lion and the lamb are not lovers in most versions of this metaphor. Secondly, Bella blames herself. When the lion falls in love with the lamb, Bella thinks the lamb is stupid because she feels stupid for becoming prey, and clearly she's the lamb in the situation. As with everything else in the Twilight series, when Edward does something, it falls on Bella's shoulders, and that includes falling in love. When you isolate this set of lines outside all of their context of the book, the lamb doesn't even get to do anything. The lamb is an object for the lion, and Stephanie Meyer knows it. Finally, why does Edward say the lion is masochistic? Masochism is when a person derives pleasure from something that appears to be painful or tiresome. When you're wrapped up in the story, it makes sense that Edward sees his love for Bella as masochistic because he spends his downtime on self-flagellation, but the slightest step back from the situation reveals that in a hypothetical scenario where a lion falls in love with a lamb, the lamb is in the most danger, far outweighing whatever penance Edward would get to choose to perform on himself if he accidentally killed Bella. 
The lion and the lamb metaphor also taps into my greater frustrations about Edward's self-loathing. It's natural for a lion to want to eat a lamb. It's natural for a vampire to want to kill a human. Frankly, even Bella wants Edward to suck her blood. He's resisting his animal instincts to no one's benefit, except for maybe some avoidable consequences with the Quileute tribe if he breaks the treaty. Bella is also frequently resisting what is natural for a teenager with hormones who's getting attention from the hottest guy in school. It's also natural to want to see the good in a creature like Edward when your relationship started with him as a human to begin with. He's standing there insisting he's a monster, and she wasn't introduced to him in that way, and they have a hard time reconciling these two truths, and it takes four books and five movies to figure it out. A huge catalyst for action in the Twilight story, and nearly all other vampire stories to be honest, is the existence of blood. With the exception of vampire characters written for children, all vampires pretty much go weak when they're given the opportunity to drink some fresh blood. Picture a shark in blood-infested waters, somebody on a restrictive diet at a holiday party, or the hangry guy in the Snickers commercial that says, you're not you when you're hungry. The vampire yearning for blood is a lot more intense than my personal yearning for, like, a chocolate chip cookie, but even if they were at the same base level, vampires are dealing with a unique scarcity that's more similar to wild animals than to humans. In most literary universes, Twilight included, there are no vampire vending machines with bags full of blood. Vampires who assimilate into human culture hunt infrequently and face many obstacles like sunlight or vampire slayers. The Cullens have the additional problem of never being fully satiated thanks to their vegetarian or animal blood-only diet. The bloodlust is animalistic, and just about as natural a response as a vampire is capable of having. The biggest test of blood self-control is in the ballet studio at the end of Twilight, where Bella's blood is spilled, and Edward has to stop her from turning into a vampire by sucking the blood out. We get to see a lot of Edward's pain in this moment, and a surprising amount considering that Bella's badly injured and losing blood while also narrating the story. She could see his perfect face twisted into a mask of indecision and pain. The scene continues from Edward's perspective in Midnight Sun, because he was actually conscious for the entire life-threatening event, unlike Bella telling the story in the original, who passes out. He talks about the satisfaction, joy, and bliss of tasting Bella's blood after Carlyle convinces him to suck out James's venom. James is the vampire who stalks and tries to kill Bella in the first book. Once Bella passes out, Carlyle tells Edward that it's his decision if he wants to let her turn. Ultimately, Edward decides he would be angry for the rest of eternity if James got to lay claim on Bella's life by being responsible for taking it, and he's inspired to suck the venom out. I truly don't believe it was Edward's choice, and I'm incredibly frustrated that the whole scene is treated as something more traumatic for Edward than for Bella. They're allowed to both be traumatized at the same time for different reasons, without taking away from the fact that Bella is writhing so close to her goal of becoming a vampire while also so close to death. It happens pretty much the same in Life and Death, except that Edith, the female version of Edward, actually asks Bo if he wants to turn into a vampire because, quote, he deserves a choice, and she apologizes a bunch for no discernible reason. Edward thinks he's entirely responsible for Bella's choice and also doesn't apologize. Bloodlust evidently has gender boundaries. In Midnight Sun, we get more information about how Edward really feels about blood. He not only lusts for Bella's blood, but he envies her humanity and lack of his own blood reminds him of what he hates about himself. He hates his body more than his personality, even though his personality arguably needs more work. At one point, when he's trying to not eat Bella, he says, Her pulse began to race as well. I could feel it under my hand and hear her galloping heart. 
Pink flooded her face from her chin to her hairline. The sound and sight of her response, rather than awakening my thirst again, seemed only to speed the rush of my more human reactions. I couldn't remember ever feeling this alive. I doubted I ever had, even when I'd been alive. The blush on your cheeks is lovely, I murmured. I'd like to note real quick that Edward has been a vampire for the vast majority of his existence. Asking him to remember what it's like to be human would be like asking Bella to recall the first three days she was alive. It was a long time ago with weaker senses and recall. However, he fixates on mourning his human body from time to time, and he doesn't make a lot of progress. As I already mentioned, the Twilight vampires identify as vegetarian. They only drink the blood of forest creatures rather than humans. Twilight didn't exactly invent this concept, but calling it vegetarianism points to an ethical higher ground, maybe a liberal tilt to vampirism. Best of all, it says without saying that humans are the cattle of the vampire world. Humans aren't human at all. There's something to be farmed and murdered. Edward is a vegetarian vampire, so he wouldn't murder a human anymore, but not because he can't. He chooses not to because of his personal morals. His morals aren't strong enough to actually protect Bella. His animal instincts could overpower his morals at any moment because he just can't help himself. Bella looks so delicious. I'm confident in saying that most people's morals would be trumped by their animal instinct in a situation that required it. The infamous Donner Party is a classic example of people resorting to eating other people for survival when there's no other choice. In a less extreme example, many vegetarians will eat meat if they go on a trip abroad, or vegans will eat cheese if offered a free meal with no other options. In Edward's case, compromising his diet means taking out the first-person protagonist of the entire Twilight Saga. In an essay by Lucy I. Baker called Fans and Vampires at Home, there's a clear light shown on this issue of humanity in the Twilight Saga. Twilight is strange because the vampires are clearly inhuman, but the people are also stripped of human rights when they simply become prey or the non-vegetarian option. Bella's willingness to woo Edward and repeatedly offer herself as host lacks any sense of human preservation, as Edward so often points out. Historically, humans have wanted to preserve themselves, though in modern times, Bella's willingness to die probably resonates better with millennials and younger, who tend to feel the imminent end of humanity on their doorsteps more than generations past. Even with that context, humanity is not traditional in this story. According to Baker, to be good in Twilight is to be conflicted about oneself, even if that causes harm to others. As a contrast, the concept of being good in psychology is associated with empathy, kindness, and a lack of self-centeredness. In Twilight, Edward's ongoing angsty identity struggle is seen as more human than Bella's offering up her human blood for vampire snack time purposes. Bella sees humanity in the vampire and monstrosity in the human, which might be nice in a different universe, but only fuels toxic dynamics in this world where Bella's most important attribute is her body and Edward's is his soul. Life and death doesn't shed much light on this because we don't know what Edith is thinking. While there are stories of female vampires, they're greatly outnumbered by male vampires, and stories of romance between a female vampire and a male human are less common. In some ways, the mere existence of life and death is original in that way, despite it being a warped copy of Twilight. It might be too much to ask Stephanie Meyer to write Twilight a fourth time from Edith's perspective, but it would help tighten the screws on some of my arguments, so I'm submitting that request now. Stephanie, please write Life and Death from Edith's perspective. I just want to see more of what a female vampire is all about. You could even give me a story about Alice or Rosalie, and I'll eat it up just the same. In the introduction to Hospitality, Rape, and Consent in Vampire Popular Culture, the author suggests that vampire stories often uphold heteronormative, patriarchal, white values, even when the vampires somehow threaten the status quo of a town. Plus, historically, romance stories involve a man courting a woman and or a damsel in distress. 
to work in that context, a vampire has to be a man and the victim has to be a woman. Any creative reworkings of the structure have come in the fairly recent past. The male vampire narrative, as some extension of rape culture, has been written about extensively. The aggression and animalistic nature of the vampire as a predator often extends right into the vampire's sexual nature, and often reflects and exaggerates the human-male courtship we see in real life. Something about this kind of story allows for aggression and rape under the guidance that once a human girl falls in love with the vampire boy, she's not just offering companionship, she's fully offering her lifeblood and isn't able to withdraw consent once she makes the agreement. Edward Cullen doesn't take advantage of victims the way other vampires might. For example, Damon in Vampire Diaries feeds on girls and erases their memories so they don't remember it happened. Vampires in the Buffy series can't have sex if they have a soul because sex is so intrinsic to the hunt. There's also a theory that comes from the uh, Vampire Freud crossover universe that inviting a vampire into the home correlates to inviting the vampire into the body. The penetrative nature of a vampire bite can also be compared to sexual penetration. Human bodies aren't sacred in any universe, where murder of one means survival for another. Edward is, of course, morally superior and all about the long play, and his relationship with Bella ends up with aggressive presumptions once they're married. More on that later. His constant presumption that he knows how she feels better than she does, and assumed consent when none has been given, is the essence of rape culture. Humanity may actually be one of the creepier aspects of the vampire existence, and even the werewolf existence. It's not so hard to villainize a bat or a wolf that attacks humans or other wildlife because it's completely natural and it's an animal. The creepier part is that a vampire or a werewolf passes as a human at parties and attends high school and all that. A vampire walking among us is a lot scarier than a vampire on a hill that we could choose not to visit. Dracula, who by all means is a blueprint for all vampires that followed, would sometimes climb down the outside of his castle instead of flying, even though he could totally turn into a bat and fly. This really creeped out his neighbors, who said, There was still more of the man than the beast. This fact, that it was still human, was the most repellent attribute of the creature. Throughout time, vampires have been able to shapeshift into wolves, bats, or mist, but the Twilight vampires do not have such gift. They pass as human all the time, blend in with other humans, and face obstacles that are more or less human. Twilight vampires have plenty of other gifts that help them get along and make them difficult to associate with. It seems like there's no end to their possible supernatural powers. Within the Cullen Coven alone, there's someone with subjective cognition, tactile thought projection, telepathy, mental shield projection, and pathokinesis. In simple terms, we have mind readers, emotion controllers, and future tellers. It seems like Stephanie Meyer wanted us to believe that vampires with special traits all get together to join the vampire government known as the Volturi, but Bella has powers the second she's turned. If we're looking at a sample size of just the vampires we're introduced to, the majority of Twilight vampires have some gift. Even the average vampire in Twilight is still immune to garlic, wooden stakes, silver, sunlight, drowning, holy water, and they can even live through decapitation as long as the rest of their body isn't destroyed in the meantime. The only thing that really messes them up is fire, which kind of makes sense because they're so cold. There's a handful of times throughout the saga where being cold becomes a problem, but one that I really wanted to throw in here for fans of the movies is there's one particular scene in Eclipse where Bella is freezing cold and she needs warmth. The only person who can provide warmth is Jacob, whose werewolf blood makes him run at a higher temp, which is conveniently the exact opposite of Edward's colder temp. Jacob uses this moment as an opportunity to say, Face it, I'm hotter than you. Which <laughs> caused the crowd to scream when I saw this movie in theater. 
Jacob and Edward aren't really all that different, though, which makes the love triangle kind of boring. At the end of the day, they're both animalistic men with superhuman powers and predatory tendencies. They both see Bella as prey, and they both think they know what's best for her. They both think it's their job to protect her. It's easy to be fooled by the fire and ice contrast, but Edward and Jacob are two halves of a whole, like two half-humans that comprise a whole. If I equated them perfectly, I'd be lying, because Jacob's slightly more compassionate and Edward's slightly more dead and cold, but they're a lot more similar than they are different. The cold Twilight vampire body is pretty gross to me, and it's a big part of why I was Team Jacob as a middle schooler. I don't like that Twilight vampires don't bleed, cry, eat, or drink. It makes them too different from humans for my personal liking, and it was definitely a choice by Stephanie Meyer, not a given for vampire lore. Touching a Twilight vampire is a dead giveaway that they're inhuman, which has to factor into why they keep so much to themselves. There's very little chance of brushing arms with someone who always sits across the room. In Life and Death, Bo feels inclined to touch Edith more often than Bella touches Edward. I've got an example like this practically every week, where something we might have thought was a vampire thing turns out to be a masculinity thing. Edward calls the shots on how often Bella can touch him, because once he's disclosed he's dangerous, because once he's disclosed his dangerous nature and volatility, Bella knows better than to try and touch him, even when she wants to. He could snap. Bella and the reader take for granted the unspoken understanding that part of why Edward is dangerous is because he is a man. It becomes more obvious when Bo goes straight into the second half of Life and Death, saying things like, She was dangerous, I knew this, but I kept running into a wall when I tried to believe it. Bella, like Bo, doesn't want to believe Edward is dangerous, but she does believe it. She's scared of what Edward's capable of, and makes a conscious effort to overlook his dangerous aspects in favor of helping him find his humanity. Edward and Bella have the conversation about Edward's hunting habits naturally. He says, and you still want to know why you can't see me hunt. He seemed solemn, but I thought I saw a trace of humor in his eyes. I was mostly wondering about your reaction. Did I frighten you? Yes, there was definitely humor there. No, I lied. He didn't buy it. I apologize for scaring you, he persisted with a slight smile, but then all evidence of teasing disappeared. Edward is making light of Bella's fear and not taking her at her word when she describes her own emotions. Regardless of whether or not she was lying, I feel like he shouldn't just assume he knows better than what she's telling him, and I also feel like she should try being a little more honest about how she feels. In Life and Death, it goes down almost the same, but of course, a little differently. And you want to know why you can't see me hunt? She asked. Her voice was serious, but her expression was a little amused. Not at all like it had been in the cafeteria earlier. Yes, and why you seem so mad when I asked. She raised her eyebrows. Did I frighten you? The question sounded hopeful. Did you want to? She tilted her head to one side. Maybe I did. Okay, then, sure. I was terrified. Here, again, someone is making light of someone else's emotions, but this time, Bo is refusing to take Edith seriously because he doesn't believe she's dangerous as a vampire, but also because he's more concerned with flattering her, even though it's clearly sarcastic, than he is with actually building a connection. It's equally as messed up as Bella and Edward's relationship, but in both cases, it's the girl and not the human who are poked at for wanting the situation to play out a certain way. If everyone was honest in both scenes instead of flirty sarcasm and veiled fear, maybe this could lead toward a healthier relationship, but that's clearly a different book, and it's not a book written by Stephanie Meyer. Life and Death allows us to see more of how Stephanie Meyer views the vampire body. 
For one, we get slightly more diversity in shapes and sizes. Since the whole Cullen clan has gendered ideal bodies in the original, swapping everyone's gender gives way to more androgyny than Stephanie Meyer ever would have written on her own. She chose over and over to rely on Anglo-American beauty standards instead of vampire lore, leading her down many problematic character arcs, including the disregard for any non-white vampire. I can't think of a reason other than racism that the majority of the vampires in Twilight are white. If there was a rule that stated vampires had to be albino because of the sun, or because they all hailed from the North Pole or something, I'd still call racism, but a half-assed excuse is still an excuse. These are American vampires for the most part, some Italian vampires, and if that's not good enough, I'm pretty sure Twilight canon claims the existence of vampires on a global scale. The entire Cullen family is known to be adopted kids, so Stephanie Meyer really could have written a black vampire or cast a black vampire in the Cullen family once the movie started coming out. It's well known among the Twilight fandom that Stephanie Meyer did not want any black actors in her movies. There's one vampire named Laurent who is black and proves the existence of non-white vampires. He dies. There's also a random black vampire in the Breaking Dawn fight scene that's basically just a stuntman because we don't know anything about him. Traditional vampires are pale, yes, because they stay indoors during the day and live in Romania. Neither of those things are relevant to the Cullens. And while we're talking about problematic, the hetero scenes sometimes get weird for me too, like some scenes where it gets overwhelmingly heterosexual because all the het vampire couples are lined up, but that only bothers me like once a movie when they beat you over the head with it. So yeah, when you switch all the genders, there's slight diversity in bodies. The Alice character as Archie is still a shorter person, and the Emmett character as Eleanor is still beefy, despite the betrayal of traditional masculinity and femininity. In the cafeteria, when Edward is explaining how their hunting works, Emmett is sitting at another table with his thick bands of muscle that wrapped his arms and torso in a menacing fashion. In Life and Death, it's the same thing. Eleanor's muscles are intimidating all the way down her arms and legs. There's a super fun scene in Twilight where all the vampires play baseball, and when the genders are swapped, everything stays the same. In the original, Emmett hits the hardest and Edward is the fastest. In Life and Death, Eleanor hits the hardest and Edith is the fastest. Instead of Esme, the vampire mom, sitting out the game to be umpire, it's Ernest, the dad, who sits out to call the plays while his wife, the successful doctor, Corrine Cullen, runs the bases. I also can't forget to mention the absolute power play of Dr. Cullen's introduction as a woman in a world where most people jump to conclusions that someone with a doctor is a man. Of all people, I would not think Stephanie Meyer would manage to get this credit, but if, I love Dr. Cullen as a woman. When it comes to physical strength, there's gender equality in vampires, unlike in humans. In fact, sports competitions are one of the main realms we still struggle with as a society to understand in a less gendered way. There's extensive conversation about trans kids competing in sports, there's the issue of girls being forced out of baseball and into softball at a certain age, and there are clear gender discrepancies in performance for athletes from middle school track all the way up to the Olympics. It goes without saying that I don't think your worth is tied to your mile time, and I'd also like to point out these kinds of discrepancies only really exist when everyone is super fit. If there's a woman who runs every day and a man who works an office job and doesn't work out, who are you going to ask to help you lift a heavy table? It's sort of unreasonable, but not surprising, that most people's brains go straight to, well, Michael Phelps swims faster than any girl Olympian, and they can't even name a girl Olympian, even though that has almost nothing to do with people's physical performance in the regular non-Olympic world. 
Stephanie Meyer tries to run some feminist offense about stereotypical straight relationships in Midnight Sun. There's no doubt she understands basic gender equity, even though her nuanced misogyny is all over the page. At one point, Edward helps set up Angela with a date who turns out to be taller than her. He admires her disregard of such a trait and says, How silly humans were to let a six-inch height difference confund their happiness. I found this haphazard insert sort of laughable, considering all the vampire couples were a man taller than a woman with no challenge whatsoever to relational norms. I get that part of the allure of the Twilight Vampire and plenty of other vampires, to be honest, is a beauty that exceeds their life as humans. Stephanie Meyer, as the author, got to choose what those beauty standards are, going off of whatever was around culturally. White, thin, dainty if female, muscular if male, perfect complexions, and yes, men who are taller than their women partners. This is a choice. By including a short-lived side plot where Angela is going to a dance with a short king, the other indirectly conveys that you're technically allowed to do such a thing, just not as the main character. A similar quote-unquote empowerment comes up in Twilight where Bella encourages Angela to stop waiting for Eric to ask her to the prom and ask him herself. It fascinates me that the entire Twilight saga ends on a level playing field. Once you take away that strength difference that humans have and give it to the vampire world, everything's sort of even. After so much fixation on Bella's vulnerability, fragility, clumsiness, accident proneness, and just breakability, and after a super graphic birthing scene that would have been fatal if no vampires were in play, Bella's now strong enough after her change to fight in an all-out vampire war in Breaking Dawn. Again, drawing from that Baker essay, the hospitality of the Collins attracted Bella and kept her around long enough to eventually turn into the sparkling heroine. The Twilight vampires are domesticated, so to speak, changed by years of vampire stereotypes. Edward and the rest of the coven gave up some of their vampire identity by not sleeping in coffins and wearing cloaks, but they exchanged it for a home that didn't immediately scare off Bella. Dracula got to startle people who didn't know what he was, whereas Bella got to do a Google search and confront Edward in a meadow. Say it out loud. You're a vampire. But Edward wasn't Dracula or Nosferatu. He was Edward. He was quaint and tall and went to high school. At this point, keeping in mind that Bella found more humanity in Edward than anyone else, Bella's change to become a vampire was actually the most access to her humanity that she gets in the entire series. As a human, Bella's stuck on trying hard and not getting very far, being incredibly mediocre at the things she does. Her vampire transformation is linked to her motherhood, since her transformation doesn't happen until she's bleeding out on the delivery table for her precious little half-vampire baby. Now that she's a mother, she can do anything. She can clean and tend house quickly and easily with all the strength required to do so. This is everything Bella has wanted since she met Edward, to reward his stalkerish and abusive behavior by offering up her body as a host for his venom. The more he hurts her, the closer she gets to accessing the domestic life she wants. To be frank, this plotline makes more sense the closer your mindset is to Stephanie Myers, and on my end, it doesn't make much sense at all. The last thing I'll leave you on is also a bit of a teaser for next week's episode. One half of the animal nature of humans is the rage and bloodlust and the iron-bending strength, but the other half is the sexual nature, or at least it can be. When Edward and Bella are holding hands and kissing on the cheek or whatever in Midnight Sun, Bella speaks up. Your human instincts, she asked slowly. Well, do you find me attractive in that way at all? I laughed out loud at that. Was there any way in which I did not want her? Mind and soul and body, body no less than either of the others. I smoothed my hair against her neck. I may not be human, but I am a man. 
This podcast was written, recorded, and edited by me, Susie Shelton. The theme music is by Alexis Lopez. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review, share it with your friends, and consider tuning into our sister podcast, Jawbreakers, also on the Nurmer Nurmer Network, or by following Nurmer Nurmer on Instagram. You can DM any feedback or questions to that account, and I'll get back to you. And there's also an email address. It's network at gmail.com. All sources used for this episode are in the description. And if you know anybody that's experienced sexual assault, please know you're not alone. The number for the National Sexual Assault Hotline is 1-800-656-4673. It is confidential and available 24 hours a day. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline phone number is 800-273-8255. Special thanks to you for listening to this podcast, and extra special thanks to Stephanie Meyer for ruining my life.